Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 17, Racism and Blackness with Ian Partman. As we observed in episode 11, the prisoners in Plato's cave have never seen another human being. They have not even seen themselves. When you ask them what a human being looks like, they can only refer to a shadow on the screen in front of them. But as we have seen in the previous episode with Mark Reinhardt, these images are hugely consequential. In our political reality, by which I mean the force field of power relationships in society, it makes a huge difference what you look like and where you're from, even if this is completely arbitrary. One of the biggest questions in my own life is that if we know this, how come we still live in a world where we categorize human beings based on how they look or where they are from? And how if you fit into a certain category, for instance black or white, this instantly has so many consequences for your daily life and for the part of human history that you inherit. The category you fit into can either mean that you can literally be killed for it, or that the reality for those in other categories is completely invisible to you. We certainly live in a kind of racial cave, in the illusion that the color of your skin says something about the content of your character, even though we have known for quite some time now that it doesn't. At the same time, since it has so many consequences for your life on earth, doesn't the color of your skin go more than skin deep? I really don't know. So I'm grateful to our guide Ian Partman for speaking about this with us. Ian is a 19-year-old student, writer, activist and artist based in New York City. He is the founder of Ignite Collective, a national organization of young activists who work to resist police violence through mutual aid and direct action. He currently works at the Brennan Center for Justice in the Office of the President. Ian is also working on a forthcoming monograph that explores black childhood in the age of Black Lives Matter. You can find him and more of his work at ianpartman.com. So obviously people cannot see us because, uh, well, we are on Zoom, we can see each other, but uh, it's an audio-only podcast. But if uh, people would have to name some differences between us, right? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously you're a little younger than, uh, than me. <laughs> uh, you have a little bit more hair <laughs> as well. But just a little. Just, just a little, little yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, different clothes and everything. And also your skin tone is a little bit different than mine, right? Yes. And um, somehow that last part is, is very, very important in the, in the world we live in. So I guess my main question is why? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, there's a historical continuum to um, these hundreds of years of, of colonial violence and plunder and dispossession uh, through slavery and, and genocide. And um, it was so 
ubiquitous and, and so transformative of, of, of the modern world at that time that it reverberates in our everyday and in, in very uh, often perplexing, but, but also very obvious ways, uh, culturally, politically, socially, uh, institutionally, and, and systematically. And, and, it, it, and I think a part of what makes it so universal and universalizing is it's, um, it, the fact that it, that it is confusing, that it is perplexing, that it seems to, to vex us and, and, can, and, 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 and escape us all the time. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why it's so hard to escape, but at the very same time, it's, it's part of the, the reason why it, it needs to be thought and it needs to be uh, rethought and, and, and we need to imagine and otherwise are outside of, of the sort of institutional, political, uh, social and cultural uh, technologies and apparatuses that are designed to, to disseminate certain kinds of violence on to, to black people and, and people of color generally uh, that create these gaps and these distances between people like you and me. Can you tell a little bit about yourself and, and why you are interested in this topic of racism? Yeah, of course. So uh, my name is Ian Partman. Uh, I'm 19 years old. I'm a, I'm a student, a researcher, writer, artist, uh, and community organizer based in New York. Um, my academic interests are typically in um, histories of racial exclusion um, in modern institutions. A lot of the work that I've done is based around like medical education and the medical humanities and the ways in which medical educational curricula, curricula and practices are structured around systemic biases and racism, uh, interpreting these biases through the work of critical theorists like Michel Foucault. Um, but I, my, my interest outside of that sort of academic publications that I'm trying to lean into now um, are based around the relationship between African-American literature and African-American English and um, its relationship to political fictions, its relationship to international politics, uh, international law, and how Black writers and novelists and, and activists respond to sort of these political and legal crises through the, through the text and through the novel and the novel's political possibilities. Um, so that's sort of where I'm sensing like a pivot right now in my own like researching life. Um, but other than that, I think what uh, I also, uh, I work at the Brennan Center, um, which is a, a legal nonprofit uh, based in New York City. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we do there is around preserving and revitalizing systems of democracy in America in relationship to the prison system, in relationship to voting rights, uh, in relationship to questions of national security and surveillance. Um, and so uh, that is, um, I think that that is a good gateway for thinking about my, my current interest in, in thinking about racism um, is that it is a philosophical question for me 
um, but it's also very much one that is rooted in my interest in 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 the law and and it is also you know a deeply personal one for me because I did forget to say this, but I am I am African American um, and so you know I've spent the most of my 19 years acutely aware of the the ways in which I have been made vulnerable to, to violence and vulnerable to discrimination because of my blackness. Um, and so I think it's just this like strange imagination of all of these things that seem now to emerge as a necessity for me to think about. So I guess that's, that's, that's where I am. Mm -hmm. And is this, you, you say that you're aware I, I'm white and I can go about my day without thinking about that pretty much if I don't have to. Is that the same for you now or, or is that where there different parts in your life where you you were being made aware of it yeah i mean i think that um it's not something that i am consciously thinking about 24 7 you know it's not always at the top of my mind so to speak but it is always there it's it's always like if it's not something that i can immediately register in my conscience consciousness it's um it's something that that is there sort of in the subconscious it's something that's lingering uh around me um and it's this interesting feeling sometimes even that i can't name where i'm in certain spaces um like just walking on the street and 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 i don't even think about it until it's obvious to me that the street that I'm walking on, I'm the only black person walking on the street and people are mm -hmm. looking at me uncomfortably or I'm getting an abnormal amount of stares or, or, or gazes. It's something that I don't think about when I'm, you know, um, on my way to my internship and I get in the elevator and it's only me and a white woman and she moves to the other corner in the elevator. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not something that I'm thinking about until I leave my apartment um, and the people across the street are confused that I live in this building or something like that. Like it's- um, And why, why are they confused? Uh, I mean, I live in a pretty like pretty white neighborhood. Um, there are few places uh, in New York City that are not being actively um, segregated and, and dispossessed through these like housing laws that make it possible for real estate developers and companies to go into these neighborhoods and build luxury high-rise apartments to drive out poor people, to drive out people of color. Um, and so I think it's just this thing that is always there and it's always present, even if I don't necessarily have the language to describe it or I'm not willing to have the language to describe it. It's just lingering. It's lingering in the, in the, in the, in the corner somewhere. And is it something that you have to act on? I mean, you gave an example of people staring at you or someone moving away from you in an elevator. Um, is there something that you do in that moment or are there other moments where you have to do something which I probably wouldn't I mean, you're a New Yorker. I'm not a New Yorker. But if I would be in that elevator, probably the reaction would be different. 
but is there something that you have to do or is it just an a feeling or an awareness that that comes yeah i mean i think that sometimes i have a desire to react to situations such as you know me being in the elevator or me being being looked at strangely and i am also aware at the same time that my reaction can be a matter of life or death if i yeah. you yeah. know if i'm in the elevator and and i notice that the the white woman who moves to the corner of the elevator is is deeply uncomfortable and i try to react to that wrongly you know she has she can call the police and you know i could be you know slammed to the body slams and 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 handcuffed because she said that i threatened her yeah um or you know when i'm on the street you know there there are ways in which my reaction becomes mediated by another awareness that i have that if i react in a certain way or i don't react properly or i'm not being consciously aware or i don't react at all you know all of these things could result in 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 violence that i would experience at the hands of the police for example and so it's it's an it's this interesting thing that i think you have to navigate alongside these everyday experiences is whether your one's willingness to 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 respond in every instance and and it's difficult because i do find that for the most part i'm not reacting i'm not you know being in a situation where i'm defending myself because I'm aware that I could something integral of my personhood could be violated if I defend myself, uh, and so it's 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 a very constricting uh, position to be in. Um, but you know there are other re reactions, there are other responses to 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 those moments that don't have to happen at the same time that they take place, you know, and I think that's that's where where community organizing uh, comes in for me. That's where writing comes in for me. That's where, you know, my academic research and my like advocacy work and all of this stuff comes in for me is that it's, these are my ways of mediating these situations um, that gives me some degree of protection at the, but it also allows me to process them and it allows me to respond to them and, and create and develop solutions or ways of thinking about systemic and institutional racism and its reverberations in ways that lend themselves to productive practices. So, you know, that is really what, um, that's why I think, for example, African American literature is always political literature because it is, you know, the, Amer the experience of African American people has been one marked in, indelibly and inextricably by the legacy of, of chattel slavery and our everyday lives take up political forms um, because they are reactions to the violences that we experience that reverberate around every part of our of our waking day. How would you describe this relationship your relationship to that past. In the previous episode, we, we talked about French philosopher Bernard Stiegler, and he speaks about the past that you have not lived. For instance, through your last name, you inherit the past, but 
you you've not it, it's not your own experience that passed you have you weren't alive at that time so to speak right but you need to relate to it in in some way i guess and it it shapes your life it's like this this background that that is always there <laughs> that makes it that that uh taking the elevator is a different experience for you than it is for me mm-hmm. um just based on how we look not based on you know you're uh, a local there you work there <laughs> If I break into the building and and I'm I'm from another country and so it's, I'm, maybe I'm simplifying, but it's just based on how you look. Yeah, I, when you think about because it's not even that long ago. When was when was slavery abolished? Slavery was formally abolished in in 1863, yeah. and then slaves in America were formally emancipated by the end of the Civil War in 1865. And when was segregation ended? Segregation, like de facto, or de jure rather, segregation was ended uh, in 1965 with the Civil Rights Act. 1965. Yeah. And and my my mother was born literally the next year. Yeah. But but still, it is your you your mother was born the next year, and you were born nine. Uh, I mean, uh, some years later. But still, it is your world, right? It's, it's your past. Yeah, I think um, I think that Siegler's proposition of like the past that one does not live reminds me a lot of Jacques Derrida's theory of hauntology and like specters. So that there is there are these there are these ghosts. Of the of the past that seep into the cracks of the present that we can't necessarily understand. They're not totally tangible, but they're there, and they produce a spectral presence in our everyday lives. And I think that um, there's a the American historian, cultural theorist, and 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 philosopher Sadia Hartman uh, determines that this experience. Uh, for Black people across the African diaspora comes to us as what she terms the afterlife of slavery, which are these continuous reverberations of slavery in in public life and in private life. And so, you know, even though slavery in the in the in the United States was was formally abolished uh, in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, there are reverberations to that. So we moved from chattel slavery to systems of sharecropping in which slaves were brought back to their plantations to work for menial pay, to work for housing. And it creates this system of of contracted wage slavery um, that is almost entirely indistinct from, from chattel slavery, but the critical distinction is that sharecropping is now legal and, and chattel slavery isn't. And then you, then you have the, the introduction of the American penitentiary system that creates these systems called convict leasing, where literally formerly emancipated slaves were brought back to work on plantations because they were convicted of menial crimes, like standing out, like loitering. So standing outside of a shop too long. Um, you have the transition from these systems to Jim Crow uh, with 
de facto and de jure segregation and practices of indiscriminatory or practices of discriminatory rather um, social life. Um, and then, you know, civil rights doesn't really formally end all of these modes of institutional, the Civil Rights Act and civil rights movement don't formally end these institutional modes of, of racial violence. And as far as they persist through zoning practices, they persist through a lack of access to healthcare, a lack of access to education, a lack of access to housing. And so I think that it is not so much a past that one does not live, really. It's, um, it's a past that, that one inherits. Um, and, 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 and that inheritance is, is the living um, because it, it begins from the moment, you know, contra, contra um, uh, Plato's allegory where people are placed in the cave at, at, during their childhood and not at their birth. I would argue that um, we're placed in this, in this afterlife of slavery from the minute that we're born. And for many black people, our entire lives are spent reckoning with the, the reverberation of, mm -hmm. of slavery's violence. Um, and so it's, it's, an, it's an interesting phenomena <clears throat> because obviously I didn't live through cattle slavery. Obviously I didn't live through Jim Crow, but I'm, I'm also living in a, in a very particular uh, point in time in, in the formation of racial violence and, and, and institutional racism in America, one that is uniquely perplexing because it seems to us that things like slavery and things like Jim Crow don't exist anymore and that they're figments no. of a perpetual past that we've moved beyond and that we've thrown away and that we've reckoned with properly. But, um, you know, 50, 50 odd years is, is not enough to, to reckon with hundreds of years of, of dispossession, of, of plunder, of genocide, of, of captivity, of dehumanization, of this sort of insurmountable and intangible brutality, this peculiar institution of violence that we, that we call slavery. Um, well, and it's not even like it, it's, it ended, <laughs> right. right? You know, so why I, I, one of the things that, that, so, okay, I just speak a little bit about my own past, which is, which is different, right? But I'm, I'm very thankful to my family. So my primary school was like, it was very mixed with people from all different kinds of cultures. And in the Netherlands, you have people from, you know, uh, that, that lived in, in, in my city for a long time, but also from Suriname, from Turkey, from Morocco, from uh, many different places uh, of the world. I was very lucky that I was in this primary school where this was very different and I got kind of, those were my friends, right? And then in high school, I was in kind of, a, I just chose this high school because it was the closest one to my house. <laughs> So I could walk there, but I think there were maybe four or 500 students and maybe two or three black people. <laughs> and it was kind of rich school and everything like that. But I, I experienced that. I experienced that there's, um, I didn't experience that as normal. I experienced that like, wow, this is 
all the people look the same. They're all from the same kind of socioeconomic environment, which maybe I wouldn't have because, of course, when you enter high school, you're diff you're busy with with different things than uh, the color of people's skin. I think you're busy with where do I fit in, how I how do I survive, uh, all that stuff. Um, I don't think I would have experienced it in the same way as like, um, yeah, how do I say it? Not just a rational experience, but like just an amazement, like where, where are the other <laughs> different looking people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think I would have experienced that if, if uh, my parents hadn't made the decision about this first uh, school. And then after high school, I went to a college with, uh, it was an international college with, I think something like 40 plus different nationalities. And now I have friends all over the world from all different parts of the world. And I think for me, that was my saving, uh, that to have some kind of awareness of something that I cannot experience because I cannot experience what it is like for for someone like you as opposed to someone like me and then even if i'm saying that i'm so amazed that i'm saying someone like you but we're specifically only talking about kind of the color of your skin and maybe something to do with your dna or something which is i mean there are much more other things to say about uh, a person which are much more important but then because of that also, you know, that second uh, part in, in high school and everything, I also experience people around me who, um, I wouldn't say they say racism doesn't exist, but it's very close to that. At least it shouldn't be a big deal. And all those things that you talked about, uh, yeah, they happened a long time ago, so they're finished. Mm -hmm. And um, how I so how I started this is that I try to um, understand, and I think I understand more how the, the things that you describe they are very hard to believe for me. I, I don't don't get me wrong. I completely believe you, and I know this stuff is happening, but I can't imagine it because. Uh, you know, just you say someone in the elevator, if I do, if I make a wrong move, they call the police and that could end badly for me. <laughs> uh, that's for me, it's not, the, that's not the real world. So it takes something for me to try to understand what life is like for someone like you. But even I have had some experiences that helped me with that because through friendship and everything, you, you, you know, you experience some things too. But that's the part that, yeah, I find very difficult. It's like, you know, when the prisoner returns to the cave <laughs> and they try to convey something, but the other people, they don't, they don't get anything. Because right. <laughs> it's not their system of reality. It's... Um... We're dealing with like a prisoner who leaves and is confronted with uh, a reality that is intangible to them that doesn't you know entirely make sense, uh, and 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 in returning you know there's not their language isn't available because everyone inside the cave is only only knows the shadows, right? They only know um, the the shadows as their system of reality. 
And in the same way, I think that we're dealing with two system, two distinct systems of reality, where something that feels impossible to you feels too possible for me. And what might be the task then of confronting these two systems of reality is, is the reaction to it to try and merge them, is the reaction to try and to bring yours into mine. Um, what is the task then? And, you know, I don't know if I have the answer to that. I feel like it's, um, <laughs> that question is also, is also sort of vexing, but it, it has to be asked, right? Like, because I think a big part of, um, the reason why it's easy for people, uh, in your, in your secondary school to say, you know, racism is a thing of, a thing of the past, or it's, it's not relevant is because it's their system of reality. Cause they're, you know, I think a lot of times I've had encounters with people throughout my life where in, in conversations around racism and conversations around anti-blackness, um, they've taken up this claim. That's like, well, that was my ancestors. That wasn't me. Yeah. I did it like my ancestors enslaved yours and not me or even my ancestors didn't enslave your ancestors. So I don't have any stakes in this game, but um, it's, and I think that's because that system of reality is constructed through the conveyance of this mode of, of historical forgetting. And of there isn't like generational trauma that slaveholders experience, so to speak. There are generational gains. There's not generational violence. Um, and so there is, um, there is this, this sense of uh, a spectral presence. I can see the ghosts of slavery in ways that, that you might not ever be able to see. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of this, there's this, there's this film called Wings of Desire. I think it's a, a German film where all of these children can see angels um, walking throughout the streets and, and none of the adults can. And so all of these children are seeing all of these angels doing all of these things. And it doesn't make sense to the adults at all. Um, and we're working with a very, very different mode of that, which is that I'm in the elevator and, and I can see what's going on, but you know, that, that white woman might not be aware that that was something that she was even doing. It might come to her as a reflex it might just be something that she does. It's not something that she necessarily is thinking about. But, um, and so, yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I'm not sure if our solution, that's something that I'm working through. And you know, I'm very young, so I, I have a lot of time to think about it, but um, is, is the task to, to make you see the ghost, to make you see that the shadows are puppets, or um, is the task to, to just force you out of the cave. Um, but then you're dealing with the fire. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a sticky situation. Yeah. Yeah, but, but we are both born, you know, we are both born into that past and I'm born in a country that um, uh, was colonizers, right? And, and we, just this year 
we issued a former apology to Indonesia for you know many atrocities that we did there mm -hmm. and and uh, Suriname and others and there was like we have this uh, um, uh, golden it's called the golden carriage and and <laughs> every year the the king now um, would ride with that to well whatever some tradition. And this carriage is very old and it has some panels on it. And, and on some of the panels, it shows depictions of like um, uh, black people and, and people making offerings and like very racist depictions. And it was mm -hmm. taken out of commission, I think uh, maybe now five years ago and mm -hmm. because it needed to be repaired. And um, now uh, there, there, then there was a discussion, should we start to use it again? or should it stay in the museum? And um, I think the king said, well, it should stay in the, to the museum until people are ready for it to, to come out mm -hmm. again. Um, but the discussions are, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, with this topic, it's very hard for me to even think about how to speak about it because it's so, um, anyway, so what? Let, let's just take small parts, right? So this part, mm -hmm. what I want to say is that um we're both born into that past but our relationship is different because you cannot escape it uh like you say you you have this you're part of this trauma and um for me even though i do have the same kind of you know re responsibility and everything like that for i can forget it um right. i can I mean, and I think that's what we want, you know, that's what we want for our children, right? That they live in a world, they don't have to think about all the stuff that happened before. But I think, yeah, so one part of the puzzle, at least, is that the realization that, that the world that we live in has a past that shaped it. And that one of the reasons why my country is so rich um, is because they made a lot of money of free not even cheap labor but free labor right and and you know like the dutch east india company was really the if we're looking at instances in the formation and history of like international politics and international trade law is the first instance in which all of these uh dissolute um discrete um merchants consolidate almost into this like national corporate class uh in order to enact this 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 plunder and, and the dispossession of goods on a larger scale and so there is like something that is very unique about the circumstance of the netherlands as well yeah and it's uh it's yeah it's it's a it's a weird um thing to not have to inherit that past but at the same time i also feel like at least in an american context i white americans do inherit the past of slavery in ways that they don't necessarily understand and so um tony morrison has these collections of lectures that she gave at harvard university uh, in the early 1990s, and it's all consolidated into this book called Playing in the Dark, in which she argues that uh, in the course of like 19th century American fictions, uh, in particular, there is this Africanist presence that haunts 
the construction of, of like the white literary imagination in America. Uh, and the Africanist presence is, is basically this kind of perpetual and naturalized African-Americanness that exists in the shadows and in this interlocked romance between the anxieties that are constructed in these novels. Uh, and she takes on what the American novelist Herman Melville, who also happens to be like one of my favorite writers, uh, calls the power of blackness. Um, to say that the American Gothic and romantic traditions in literature that shape the canon, that shape the white literary imagination, and thus also shape the white American cultural imagination, uh, have this perpetual Africanist presence that exists sort of in this liminal outside space, but still is endemic to its construction and is endemic to its continuation. Mm. And in many ways, the white American cultural identity owes itself so much to this disavowed inheritance of the slave past, this disavowed inheritance of the Africanist presence. And, and Afri the Africanist presence then becomes its own kind of shadow play in mm. the construction of, of white American identity. And, and, and you know, this has uh, Sorry, just to just to understand this part, do you mean like in in a story, or you you talk about literature, but we could to, could talk about um, uh, I don't know uh, soap operas or movies or something mm -hmm. like there's the the black help or the black best friend or uh, right. the black jazz musician or the black athlete. Is that kind of what you mean? That well, that's yeah it's a part of the story, but it always you know it's there in the. <laughs> In the fringes? It's there. Yeah, it's in the fringes. And at the same time, if you're looking at these like early American um, movies, for example, like in the early 20th century, the figure of the black maid, the, the yeah. so-called Mamie figure, right, is a side character at the same time that they are conveniently used as plot devices for uh, the continuation of the, of the narrative structure. And so even as these characters are disavowed and made precarious by their racist constructions, they still are required to, to maintain the narrative arc of the film, um, which is, you know, one of the most famous, famous instances of this is, is Gone with the Wind. Um, but it's also, so, so it's, it's, it's about these fringe characters, but it's also about like what happens when black people aren't present on the screen or on the page, when they're not side characters, but they're not characters at all and how they exist still. Um, and that's like an interesting thing I think to think about is um, the year, for example, the year that um, Toni Morrison lost the National Book Awards in 1987, it was a really big deal because she had five previous novels that were super, that, it, that had um, large-scale mainstream commercial success as well as uh, literary success and she had never won a Pulitzer or a National Book Award up until this point and the novel that did win was a novel was a was a um, Vietnam War novel in which all of the white characters are speaking in this distinct African-American black vernacular which Heinemann the the author of this novel said was meant to was meant to reflect the street talk 
that existed prior to their to their to their voyage to to Vietnam. And so, you know, even in this in this novel void really of, of black characters, black people and black culture persist. And so I don't so it's like this interesting phenomena where it's it describes the way that black people have existed on the fringes of culture and yet, you know, the continuation of, of, of an American social and cultural life requires our labor and requires us. But it's also that our labor, our culture, our lives are extracted and interplayed and, 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 and interposed into spaces where we don't exist or spaces where we're disavowed. And so it's, it's both, I would say. Um, do you think that that way it happens in literature is also the way it happens in society? Yeah, I think so. I think um, there are a lot of conversations that we have in America, in American culture about the usage of like pejorative, pejorative terms used to describe African-Americans, like yeah. the N-word. And you know, these are words that are being, that are used to describe black people and are, and then in later iterations are used by black people to describe each other as a motive of a fraternity, as a motive cultivating relationality. Um, and then they're used in context, you know, and where we don't exist, you know, conversations between young white male friends where this word is constantly being repeated and, and Black people are not present, but more than Black people not being present, these are words that are not used to describe them. And what's more, these are words being used to describe us in ways that are brutalizing and dehumanizing when they become the arbiters of, these ling of, of this language. And so it's, it happens all the time, I would say. And it also happens in the way in which people try it happens in, in in that but it also happens in cultural constructions and so um the use of slang language in america and popular culture vernacular a lot of words that are used are words that have been in african-american vernacular english for 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 you know tens of years yeah uh, for decades, and, and they enter into the popular culture imagination as if they were new words, and then they're taken up and taken out of their, their historical context and used even in the absence of the presence of Black people. Um, <clears throat> it happens in the context of the law, um, where, for example, um, there is a instance in which a black man wanted to get proper legal representation. And so he asked for a lawyer dog. And because lawyer dogs, as in the animal doesn't exist, he was denied legal representation, but he was using African-American vernacular English to ask the judge for a lawyer. Um, and so there's this constant relationship between extraction of culture and extraction of the Africanist presence and, and this African-Americanism uh, 
at the same time that it's perpetually disavowed, which is where I think uh, Morrison's work becomes sort of uniquely ubiquitous. Yeah, so then the, the, in this case, lawyer dog is not the proper way to ask for a lawyer in that context is, is what they say because, but, uh, and, and appropriating something from black culture is uh, cool in some instance, which is just, it's like edgy. It's like just proper enough to, to be accepted. And I was wondering, uh, I mean, this is just a fact check, but is it the, 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 obviously in America, you have a big thing with guns. I heard that the right to own guns was not so much about the, what the King of Britain or whatever, what it says, but it was also had to do with, with uh, the slaves at that time. Right. Yeah. A lot of it is about, so I think that in the context of America, the American history of, of gun ownership, um, it's deeply related to, to property yeah. and propriety and property law and the protection of property in the same way that like the, the history of the American police and American institutions of policing are structured by the protection of, of private property, so to speak. Um, and yeah, so, so there's this relationship between gun ownership being taken up as this, this thing that allows landowners to protect and preserve their property, but the preservation of their property, we're talking about the preservation of, of, of plantations, we're also talking about this right of, of deputization. So um, runaway slaves or people who present threats to the preservation of property, even if we're thinking about beyond the, um, beyond like the abolition of chattel slavery and we're getting into the territory of, of like reconstruction era politics and the formation of the Ku Klux Klan. There is this history of self-deputization in America, which is essentially like um, vigilante, white vigilante militias and, and, and white people taking up arms to enact extra legal and extra judicial violence on black people and black communities as if they were acting in interest of the law. I think it was last year or the year before, there was a big thing about a, a Black Lives Matter protest, I think was passing in front of a white couple's house and they came out with uh, mm -hmm. not just like yes. handguns, but like yeah. uh, army <laughs> guns. And, yeah, and I believe that was yeah. in like St. Louis, Missouri or, or Kansas City but one of, one of those places and, and a lot of people said well yeah they had the right to protect their property from those violent uh i mean it's so that's why it's so hard to talk about it's f and i i really in in this podcast i really you know try to avoid speaking of current events but the difference between i was following live on cnn the january 6th uh uh thing did i mean if those people have been black Right. That would would have gone down very differently. Right. Yeah. And in you know, I'm I'm from DC. I was in DC 
when this was happening. And it was interesting to me because it was something that I couldn't have ever imagined happening, really, that white people in mass would organize and come to try and stage an insurrection and upset and upthrow, overthrow and upseat, um, you know, the American democratic system. And so it was something that felt almost unreal at the very same time that I could totally imagine it because it was part of this larger like historical legacy of white people acting in interest of what they believe is the law and what they believe is the interest of the preservation of the American white community um, at, you know, with, with any means necessary. And so there, that was like a fascinating situation because it was something that felt totally obvious to me at the same time that I couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, but yeah, certainly like if, and, and you know, that's where we're getting at questions of who constitutes a threat to national security too, because um, people lamented the lack of what they thought was a legitimate response at the hands of the Capitol Police in responding to, to, the, to the planned and attempted insurrection. Um, because, you know, nonviolent protests across the United States were met with the Department of Homeland Security, were met with the National Guard, were met with the arbitrary and indiscriminate surveillance and targeting of protesters and activists. And, and I think it's because for you know the american political imagination nothing presents so much of a crisis nothing throws its throat it throws it in its fantasies and its constructed realities and crisis as much as the threat of black freedom and as much as the threat of black people responding even in in nonviolent ways to their everyday ongoing subjection and subordination. And, you know, just to circle this back really quickly to to gun control laws, that's why um, gun control laws in California were instantiated because the Black Panther Party was actively using California's open carry policy at the time to, as a form of political performance. So they would go and stand outside of the state capitol. They would, you know, go from one place to another, hold rallies and hold marches. And a big part of the political performance there was the fact that they had guns and that their guns were symbols of self-defense and symbols of their willingness to liberate themselves from subjection. And then, you know, we get the introduction of all of these gun control laws. And so the law is really just responding to the flexibility of white racial anxieties. And so of course the law, or of course the Capitol Police Department isn't going to respond in a legitimate sense to the white insurrection because the Capitol insurrection is the construction of a white racial anxiety over Trump's failed second election, re-election and, and the loss of, a, of, of the fantasy of a good white life and all of these other civilizational anxieties.
yeah and those things i mean we so far we've we've kind of taken a let's say historical perspective where you can say well this happened in the past and this can explain in part why you know the society we live in now uh, is the way it is but also when you're born into a certain family or neighborhood or, or country even you inherit that past and at the same time uh, it's also political in the sense that it's it's ongoing um um I think in two ways. I think in one way there there are just people who have the sentiment that yeah, but you know, black people shouldn't really be able to be president. I mean, if I had the choice, uh, I would choose choose a white like that, thinking like that. And there are those who, yeah, the example of maybe the woman in the elevator that doesn't even realize it, but it's just like natural to take a step back or something. Right. Um, so but those so those are kind of historical factors but you said also that for you it's a philosophical question so i wonder so are you how how do you read the allegory of the cave is there even a way of you we already mentioned some examples about the shadows and i think another part is becoming aware of you know the the the, the world you live in that actually many things that you think well this is natural are actually constructed and actively maintained in this way for me to have white privilege and for you to make sure that you know we won't have another black president or whatever right right but how do you yeah is there a reading of plato's cave that you can connect to this yeah and so i mean i think that um there are a like epistemological readings of 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 the allegory of the cave and and political ones and you know there's this huge contention between um Hannah Arendt and and Martin Heidegger over you know the relationship between the allegory of the cave and its political and or political ethical um ramifications but I think that maybe the response that I would have is, you know, one that is both political and epistemological. Um, and what I'm really interested in is this idea that for the prisoners, these shadows are reality because they don't have access to anything else. Uh, so they don't realize that what they're seeing are not the objects proper but the shadows of the objects in front of a fire. And more than that, they don't realize that these objects are based upon and constructed as if they were real things outside of the cave because they haven't left the cave. There isn't an, a, a sort of outside of the cave for them. And so they're left with these shadows. They're left with, um, they're left with the shadows as the sort of prima facie of their construction of reality. And what does this present for us in terms of thinking about how these, what I referred to like a few minutes earlier as white racial anxieties get constructed. And so if you don't have access to the objects themselves, the object proper, um, and you're left with the shadow, the shadow of slavery, the shadow 
of, of racial violence that you might not see yourself as a direct actor of or direct proprietor of like that woman in the elevator. Um, you are locking yourself off from this entire world outside of the cave. And so I think that the allegory of the cave presents a useful metaphor for thinking about what I would call, because I lack the language otherwise to describe this phenomenon, but it, it, it is really a sort of, of a white ignorance. But it's not, and it's not so much an ignorance, really, as much it is as much as it is a an, an epistemological darkness, an epistemological non-space, which is to say that for many white people, their system of reality are the shadows of of racial violence that appear to them as apparitions at the same time that they don't have access to the real objects of racial violence because they don't see themselves as direct agents in the continuation of these systems. And so it allows them to create a distance through this construction of an alternate reality from the, 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 the realm of the capital R real uh, of racial violence, which is the everyday ongoingness of, yeah. of, of racial violence. And I, so, and I think so that- So what, what is an example of, of such a shadow are you thinking of? I think recently something about the Dutch bank that, that accumulated a lot of their wealth uh, in the past. And they say, well, now it's the past. Or are you thinking more of like media images, images like uh, the arrest of, well, <laughs> the killing of uh, the murder of George Floyd? which is also something that, that people now see, whoa, you know, this is very, you can't deny it anymore. It's an image. Right. Are you thinking of that? Or are you thinking that such an image like of George Floyd is already a step further or is that still a shadow? I think that the interesting thing is that it's based, I think it's the shadows can be, Contra, contra Plato and Socrates, the shadows can be real objects, I would say. Like they can be real objects, but it depends on where someone is in position to the cave, if they're inside or outside of the cave. Yeah. And so like the, the recordings and, and images and the visual life of, of, of racial violence, like the killing of George Floyd can be for some people this revelatory moment in which they are brought out of the cave, right? And brought into the, the real in which, you know, they can lo no longer deny access to these objects because they are shadows. Um, and they can say, oh, this is an evidentiary cl classification for this, for this system of reality, for these objects that exist outside of the cave. Yeah. that were previously just apparitions to me, but it can also be still a fantasy. It can also still be, you know, a puppet object. And so I think it really does depend on where someone's positioned in terms of their, for better or for worse, like ep epistemological journey, so to speak. But um, I, I think that it's, um, for a lot of people, it, it's the, it has a, a certain visual life as you described, but it also has um, a deeply like psychic life 
it has a lot of a lot of it has to do with with where someone is in terms of how they understand themselves in relationship to the world around them and i think for many white people who remain in the cave these moments of in these scenes of racial violence can exist at the same time that um they don't see them as such because they only exist as shadows and you're not getting the full picture yeah i think they say well this is obviously very bad but this is an excess this is an exception or this is one person doing something bad and it has nothing to do with me right i mean that's the part about white privilege right i guess that's the the cave of white privilege where you right life is easy for you but you don't realize it because life is easy for you (laughs) (laughs) um you i mean you don't have there are many things where where you don't have to worry or where you you know the where we how we started that this this awareness or this background isn't there because this the society is built around my whiteness uh, to mm-hmm. facilitate it even even technology i mean there are all these um uh uh elevator doors might open for me but not for you uh, uh like the hand washer might uh, right. open for you and, uh, and do it for me but not for you and there was this experiment on twitter where they posted uh, an image like a very uh, long image uh, with on the bottom uh, mitch mcconnell and on the uh, top barack obama right yeah and, uh, and people were like, why are we seeing all these pictures for, of Mitch McConnell all the way? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, uh, and technology is seen as well. That's the, you know, technology is objective. Technology isn't racist, but still in this world, you know, it would be my, my image comes up quicker. If I, if I send my mm-hmm. resume to like a, a tech company or something that uses an automated uh, scanning of resumes, my resume will be there. My, my name will be selected more. So I don't notice that. <laughs> I mean, right. if I don't consciously think about it because, because I get the job. So I don't have mm-hmm. to think about it. And we often think that, you know, these systems of automation are avenues for like a post-racial or post-gendered world yeah because of their assumed object and presumed objectivity um but you know um there's an instance in which like the aclu tracked this usage of this machine learned um artificial intelligence like facial recognition technology uh and this technology uh, incorrectly misidentified a number of Black uh, Congress people in the U.S. House of Representatives as people with criminal records. And so, you know, these systems fail when they approach race because they are designed by humans and they're products of human-centered and human-centric design. And so there isn't like an assumed objectivity because the makers bring with them in their construction of these technologies and in the construction of like these deep learning algorithms, their own biases and their own, you know, non-neutralities ethically and politically and culturally and socially uh, ad infinitum. 
And so I think maybe then it's useful to see the shadows as positions of unthought, you know, in the face of this taking the shadows as a presumed objective reality is one way of, of unthinking them as apparitions and unthinking them as spectral representations of the real world outside of the cave that have large scale political, historical, and generational and interpersonal weight. Um, so yeah, I feel like I feel like um, what happens is not just a lack of access, but an unwillingness to come to terms with what one knows. Mm -hmm. And so what if as a speculative exercise, we imagined that the prisoners knew that there is an exit to the cave and they knew that they were looking at shadows, but they chose to believe that those shadows were real and that those shadows were, were not just figurative representations of real objects placed on a fire, but the objects themselves. And they allowed themselves to be deluded and, and in doing so, they've constructed with all of their possible agency and with all of their possible self-determination, a system of reality that might benefit them because in, confront in confronting that the objects are fake or the, the, that the objects are real, but the shadows are fake, they're also confronting a crisis in their imagination, which is that they're in the cave and they can't see the objects. And so, and I think for, for white people, a lot of that confrontation, you know, is the confrontation of the fact that so much of their selfhood, so much of their personhood, so much of their juridical, political, and cultural personality is indebted to this violence that they might not see themselves as active agents of, but they are active inheritors of. Yeah. And to confront that would operate as the total dissimulation of their sense of self. And so they choose to stay in the cave and they choose to construct the reality that the shadows are the objects themselves. Mm. Yeah, those are some deep thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, what I'm thinking is that if we look at what what is racism at the most fundamental, I mean, it has to do, I mean, I can ask you, I want to ask you later, I'm, uh, let me ask that first, is blackness is that just about how you look or is there more to it because there are people with with like a lighter skin tone that identifies black and there are people with a black skin tone that don't identify as black right so i think that there are like different answers to this question and so i'm going to respond to it in different ways so blackness is a term that is used to describe the characteristics of Black people. And Black people are, for many people, there are people, Black people are people that are direct descendants of the African diaspora um, or people in within Africa that experience a certain kind of world because of the, the, um, the transatlantic slave trade. And so the American, the American writer Horton Spillers has this 
essay called um, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American grammar book, in which she describes how the transatlantic slave trade in many ways was one that forcibly translated African people, people who were members of African nation states and inheritors of African culture and African society and African politics, particularly West Africa, it translated them from African subjects into Black subjects. So the translation of African into Black is one that happens as a mode of dehumanization because if we could, it, the idea was that for, for, for um, proprietors of the slave trade, that um, if we could cut off the access that African people could have to their own heritage, they couldn't find communion or relationships with each other. And the, the lack of relationality that they might have with each other makes it harder for them to commune and ultimately uprise and oversee us and overthrow us. And so the blackness emerges, you know, as a direct inheritor of, of, the, of the slave trade and of, uh, and of racial slavery's relationship to world history proper. And so it, it describes this phenomena of these people that live close to the furnace of history's making and unmaking. And so it then, you know, might describe, you know, certain phenotypical characteristics that Black people or African people might share across the diaspora. Even at the same time, though, I think that it describes a condition of global subjection such that we might come to know people who have dark skin and thus experience a particular kind of violence because of their dark skin as Black, even if we can't directly understand them as inheritors of the transatlantic slave trade. And so it's a it's a it's a, a very complex question that I think that we could end up you know talking about you know in the span of an entire podcast. But I will say beyond that that for me blackness describes this condition of subjection. But because it describes this uh, condition of subjection, it also describes a tradition of of resistance. And so I often think of blackness as the thing that exists on the fringes of, 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 of the frame of the political and of the frame of the historical. And because it exists on the fringes, it can be eruptive, it can be transformative, it can be fugitive, it can be resistant. And it describes this inherent resistance to the normative and to the normal and to the status quo, which is why it's dangerous because in the course of, of Western philosophy, you see how blackness and darkness and shadows, and, and Toni Morrison describes this in the tradition of, of the American Gothic novel, how darkness comes to threaten and pollute the, the, the rhythm of everyday life and seems to threaten the, the enlightened subject. And, and I see that threat as the possibility for, for a better world because the enlightened subject is also the subject of great brutality. You know, when Hegel says that we are all in, enchanted with the world spirit and which gives us access to total reason and rationality, but yet 
And yet somehow the world spirit skips over the entirety of the African continent and African peoples. Yeah, for, for people who, who are not familiar with Hegel, could you say a little bit about, well, his work, you could say it's a description of history and how it progresses and it's being hugely influential, right? For right. philosophy, but also, I mean, uh, Hegel was the main uh, influence of uh, Marx, uh, mm -hmm. but he has been in many, many ways, very influential and still used today. And this, philosophers said well you know the black continent isn't really part of this at all <laughs> yeah and hegel describes this as the sort of geist right and 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 one of his central works is the phenomenology of the spirit and for hegel the geist is is um the weltgeist is is the world spirit which is human culture um we all are enchanted with what he calls like the self-alienated human spirit that gives us access to reason. And it has a certain, like you said, historical progression. Um, and I think that it's useful to, to, to think about Hegel in, in this context, but also in general, because, you know, he is very important. He's a seminal character in the construction of, of, of Western thought and Western philosophy, uh, in part because he influences people like Marx, who, you know, attempts to invert Hegel's theory of the dialectic on its head in order to, to, to forward this idea of dialectical materialism and uh, the spirit of communism, for example. Um, and so what does it say that one of the godfathers of Western philosophy and thought, but so deeply believed that Black people did not have access to reason, did not have access to self-determination, and thus did not have access to quote-unquote human culture. Um, what are the ramifications for thinking about that? And maybe what Blackness does then is it presents its own system of disorder that pollutes the Western, the like the, that pollutes the order of, of Western thought and yeah. in Western philosophy in transformative ways. So that 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 kind of relates to what you said before about uh, literature, right? About the black people in that literature are necessary for it to be there, but they don't get the you know they don't get to be the main character, but they are necessary for the construction of the story. So. In this case, for instance, uh, okay, I haven't done work on racism, but I've done work on technology and robots. And often in the robot is used or technology is used as a kind of a counterpoint to say, that's not human. Humans have emotions, human uh, robots don't have emotions or we can use animals like that, right? Like right. animals don't. So because we're all human and we don't really have, we can't really go, get outside of our humanness so we if we want to say we're special we need to say we need something that is not like that so it's if i hear you correctly it's kind of like the blackness in that context gives a point to say well we're rational we're enlightened and we're organized unlike right. this chaos or this continent or like that is that is that kind of what you're thinking 
Yeah, precisely. I think, yeah, that's, that's definitely what I'm saying. And maybe another framework of understanding this is, is also like in linguistics and semiotics, which is like the study of how meaning gets constructed. Um, so Sarah, who's like a famous semiotician has this idea of the transference of signs in which he argues that signs get ascribed meaning through antagonism. So I know that that's a cat because it's not a dog. I know that this is a tree because it's not a chair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in many ways, I think that for white people and for you know even just non-white people who are not black, they come to know their identity and antagonism to this blackness that seems to take up with it the lack of access to reason, the lack of access to rationality, the lack of access to self-possessed and self-alienated human spirit. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely think it has to do with this sort of this dialectic of, um, of I know that I am human because I am not black. And um, that's like, that's um, an interesting way of thinking about the progression of American history too, right? With the Boston Tea Party and, and this idea of give me liberty or give me death. If captivity, if, if, if what they understood as their captivity and as their enslavement would constitute a kind of symbolic death, what does that say about, you know, the black people that were being enslaved in all of these colonies across the Americas because they didn't have access to liberty? And so the dialectic of, of freedom or death introduces this interesting way of thinking about how white people were imagining black people as figures of, of non-human life. Yeah, and, um, and I think also, I mean, can be as a counterpoint for what is human, but it can also be as a counterpoint. I mean, one of the roots of racism is, I guess, judging well, what, what Martin Luther King said, not by the content of their car character, by the color, color of their skin. And right. well, my question before, obviously, blackness is not just about the color of your skin, but from the other side, the, the person who judges, I, I, you, you have your visual spectrum and you see people and you see, mm -hmm. you know, their skin. Um, and... I think the way you described it earlier, it has also to do a lot with fear of the unknown because, mm -hmm. and, and wanting uh, people around you that look like you. Only right. look like you is also a construction because I don't, if I, if I think of people that look like me, I don't necessarily think of white people. I think of people, I think maybe in, a, in, a, in another way, in, in a way that people behave like, Mm -hmm. People who, I guess, like to sit down and talk to each other and work together. And I don't know how I would, I think I can see that about someone, someone, let's say friendly or something, right? I would mm -hmm. say maybe, um, okay, I'm rambling a bit. Um, yeah, so um, where was I going with this? Yeah, so in, okay, <laughs> I, I, I remember. In, in the allegory, the free person is the one getting killed. Mm -hmm. Or at least they're attempting to kill him. But the people uh, who 
are doing the killing, they're the ones in prison. So I've, I think that's a nice way to look at it as well, that whiteness in white privilege, that's, that's the being captive to this mm-hmm. world image, which is constructed for reasons of power, for reasons of privilege, for reasons of constructing like a grand narrative where you can say, well, this is good, this is normal. And because that's the counterpoint, that's uh, uh, not normal. And I became acutely aware of that in, I think in the moment, I don't know how it is in the United States, but in the Netherlands, I think we're in this racist uh, delusion at this moment in relation to uh, the war in Ukraine. Mm, Uh, I think it's not just the Netherlands, but I was so, I mean, I would love to live in a world where the refugees from all around the world are treated in the same way as we treat the refugees from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But what did you hear? It's like, why is this, why did this have such a big impact? Is you, you saw, you know, people saying, well, they have uh, uh, blonde hair and, and blue eyes, just like us. And they look like us. And they're from a civilized country. <laughs> mm. And so, um, and there's also, you know, black, I don't want to confuse many issues like blackness and, and refugees and, and um, immigration and everything. But when you think of an immigrant, you know, the, the way immigrants are spoken about are these like especially by right-wing parties it's like a threat to our way of life and our enlightened way of life and our rational way of life and everything like that but now their capacity to be integrated and assimilated into the national way of life yes people are opening their homes to ukrainian uh refugees which is great i think which of course you should do but at the same time I've read reports about non-white Ukrainians having trouble even getting out of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what's happening right now. And I, yeah, I come back to my first question: Why? Because I don't really know uh, what to do with this or how to make right. sense of this. So maybe that's yeah. Do you have anything to offer about a way forward? Because I don't want to just. I mean, we can speak about how bad it is, and it is. <laughs> But yeah, do you have a long-term vision except, you know, activism is important, of course, making people aware of this. People need to be educated about, I think one of the ways people need to be educated about is that racism is not just about, yeah, but I'm not racist or I don't have mm-hmm. racist intentions. It's it's a systemic thing. It's not just your individual bias that's part of it, but it's also, you yeah. know, the world you live in. But where do you see this going? What's the way out of the cave? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think, yeah, the the crisis in Ukraine and the refugee crisis that has been incurred um, because of it is a interesting way of beginning this because it does speak to this kind of Western chauvinism that we seem to want to to ignore or neglect in favor of this sort of universal ethics of 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 belonging and universal ethics of of protection 
at the same time that, you know, it's being made starkly and obvious to us that the, the rights that we engender to certain people and to certain migrants are asymmetrical and they're determined by this kind of chauvinism and by the coordinates of racism. So what the migrant crisis represents, but also just the general treatment of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine by the media and by popular culture represents is this idea that um, it, because it happened in Europe, it is a civilizational crisis. Um, but, you know, there are other civilizational crises that, crises that have been taking place for, for decades that haven't gotten that kind of attention, that haven't garnered the same responses by governments and by state officials and legislators because they're not taking place in Europe, because they're taking place in Latin America, they're taking place in Africa, they're taking place in the, Med the Middle East. Uh, they're taking place in Central and Southeast Asia. Um, and because they're taking place in the peripheries of the West, they are not regarded with the same level of concern. And these people are not treated with the same amount of care. And even, you know, we're, when we're witnessing, you know, the acceptance of Ukrainian refugees in mass across the West, there's also a perpetual denial of African immigrants in Ukraine who can't leave the borders who have been denied access to places like Poland um, and the ramifications of who gets access. Who gets access to, to the cosmopolitan West is also about who gets access to the ethics of cosmopolitanism. Mm -hmm. And the ethics of cosmopolitanism are often denied to black and brown people, which is why there is this interesting contradiction that happens and takes place where in Denmark, for example, uh, the previous refugee policy required that migrants coming in would have to surrender their jewelry, right? Mm. That rule got upseated, you know, in the moment that they started to accept Ukrainian refugees. When we were told by government officials that we no longer had space for more migrants from Syria or more migrants from Yemen, or more migrants from Libya, or anywhere in North Africa or the, the Middle East. Yeah. Now there's suddenly space. Now there's suddenly room to build uh, encampments. And it's because of the, the fact that we see the violence that Black and Brown people experience as legitimate violence. Um, and because it's legitimate and legitimizing violence, there isn't a legitimate solution to the violence and so it's um that's a and that has a lot to do with you know hundreds of years of the construction of the politics and the culture of modernity and i guess maybe the way forward from that is that we have to keep you know imagining a better world and we have to keep returning to the systems that that um, prevent us from this better world and seeing what ways they can be retooled and reappropriated and emancipatory means or measures. We have to maybe also consider the legitimacy of these systems, that there might be other ways, other constructions, other systems 
um, that might allow us to better understand the possibility of open borders, the possibility of an ethics of hospitality and the gift of hospitality that might allow us to better understand that refugee crises don't happen in a vacuum, but happen by way of, of war and by way of imperial violence and by way of in, interventions and, and working to, to stop these interventions and working to stop these institutions that uh, are engendered by in, intervention, invasion, and, and warfare because it's profit-making. Um, and so that's one way of thinking about getting outside of that crisis, but you know, that's something that I think that I've inherited from thinking about getting out of the sort of crisis of my own life as a Black person in America who has to live with the historical and cultural reverberations of slavery in my everyday life, but also my life as a political subject and my life as a legal subject and my life as a cultural subject. And the pathway is to is 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 to to see that these systems don't create themselves in a vacuum and to see that the shadows that have been placed in front of me are shadows that of apparitions and that these are real objects and because they are real objects i can leave the cave i can find the puppeteers I can take these real objects and I can choose to do something with them that might help us pull ourselves out of the cave and pull ourselves out of the constructions of reality that tell us that our lives are, are naturalized and determined by things that are so obviously mutable and so obviously um, mutate, mutatable and so obviously prone to reconstruction and reimagination. And the task of the philosophers may be the task of all of us in this instance, which is to, to leave the cave, to, to look at the objects, to know that they're real, to know that because they're real, they can be destroyed and new objects can be made in the place of them. And to come back to the cave and to do that hard work of convincing these people that there is an outside, that there is an exit, that there is a third way and you know, even if it means that we get beaten down and flogged down by the prisoners, it just needs to keep happening. And, and I think that's why for many black people, we see our emancipation as a long one. It has a certain like long durée, which is to say it is um, ongoing. It's not, yeah you know, we're emancipated in the past and then the present and then the future, it sort of collapses those temporal coordinates and says that it's this ongoing practice that exists, um, you know, before I was born over the course of my life. And it's something that black people born after me will have to inherit. And um, I think in my own life where this has led me is um, writing. It's led me to, you know, um, think about these issues critically and research them and write them in hopes of saying the what people might believe are the ineffable or the unsayable. But it is also um, for me the task of, of, of the political. Um, and so my interests currently are in international law and human rights law and 
the ways in which international and human rights law might be constructed or reimagined or reappropriated despite their limitations and despite the fact that they are constantly failing, that they are constantly not being enforced properly, et cetera, how these might be reimagined towards emancipatory means. So how might we see, for example, the crisis of institutional racism and the crisis of, of anti-Black racism in America as a foundational and integral violation, not only of the civil rights of African-American citizens, but also of our human rights, of our access to things under the international political and civil rights covenants of the UN Declaration of Human Rights to adequate housing, to adequate education, access to water and access to food, um, our access to life without detainment or life without cruel and unusual punishment and torture, um, our access to life without environmental racism, our access to life without egregious and cruel police structures and institutions of policing that have to be rethought and upended. Um, and so that's where it comes for me. And I think that the beauty of, of the tradition of the Black political tradition and the Black radical tradition is that everyone sort of has their roles and has their stakes. So the stakes are different for, for you know, my peers. And the stakes are also different for, for white people. And I think that for a lot of white people, it means that their task might be um, not only to recognize and confront how their lives are being constructed by, by racism and discrimination in the everyday in ways that they don't think are effable or thought, um, but it also means confronting, even if it means the total dissimulation of their self and the total dissimulation of the reality that they've chosen to construct and they've chosen to delude themselves into believing that the better, a better world for all of us is on the horizon of that, of that total dissimulation and disintegration of that sense of self, because that sense of self is an entitled one. And that sense of self, because that sense of self is an entitled one, it is one that is prone and proximate to ongoing brutalization and the ongoing extermin extermination of black and brown people across the world. Um, so it's a dual task and it all, and you know, that doesn't just mean having conversations or going to protest. Um, it also means taking very seriously the roles and the stakes that we all have in everyday politics, because if we don't take them seriously, you know, the horizon of a better world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But yeah. if we do, if we do take it seriously, and the beauty of having conversations like this is, once we have these conversations, the horizon seems to open up, light seems to, to seep in through the cave. And we can, you know, place our hands to the walls and try and figure out with this small spot of light in this darkness and feel our way through the rock till we leave and we can all exit and we can all see from outside of the cave that these were shadows and we can go to the puppeteers and we can take these objects and we can melt them down and we can build something anew outside of the cave. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so Socrates said, uh, I think the main purpose of the philosophy is know thyself. And if I hear you, it means that if you don't, uh, I mean, let's say people in white privilege, it means that part of knowing yourself also means questioning what yourself is and mm -hmm. that there may be something about yourself that is not just like your physical person now in the body but also the way the the role your whiteness played in history and and is still playing at this moment so but that, i mean what i'm trying to say it might mean for some people going to some uncomfortable spaces involving maybe as well uh, an experience of shame i guess mm -hmm. experiences of shame of embarrassment yeah uh, confusion frustration anger these are things that people seem to want to ignore for obvious reasons but they're they're productive <laughs> yeah yeah we talked we talked uh, we did uh, a while back an episode about trauma and we, we also talked about sh how shame is you know can be healing thing if you are willing to follow it of not of course not if you stay there <laughs> But you have to go through it and, and look, uh, yeah, what can I do? So you, are you still in school or did you, you, you graduated, I think, huh? No, I'm still in school. Yeah. You're still in school. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> what, does, what, are, what, what are your plans for your future uh, for after you graduate? Um, yeah. So after I graduate, um, I, right now I'm like majoring basically in English and um like geopolitics. I'm really interested in the relationship between, like I've said earlier, like literary forms and, and the law and politics. Um, and so after I graduate, I probably will go and get my MFA in creative writing. Um, and then after that, I plan on going to law school. And while I'm in law school, I wanna concentrate on international law and comparative law. Um, and then, uh, outside of that, practicing um, international human rights law um, <clears throat> and doing that kind of work of seeing the ways in which international human rights law can allow us to make um, better lives for people globally. Um, but I also don't think I'll ever give up on writing. I sort of see that task is something that exists alongside my interest in maintaining writing and academic research. Eventually, probably somewhere down the road, I'll go back to school and get my PhD in philosophy or, or literature. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens with like climate change, but <laughs> if I make it, <laughs> if I make it to my olden age, I would like to, to like teach, become like a teacher professor so i guess we'll be hearing from you <laughs> in, in the meantime do you have any any you know what's a place to start you you mentioned some some philosophers some authors already but if people want to who are listening to this want to yeah educate themselves about this topic or do you have books or movies or theories or something that would be a good place to start at least yeah Starting points. So let me think. I always recommend um, 
I always recommend James Baldwin. I think that James Baldwin is the greatest American writer of all time. Um, not just, you know, of, of recent memory, but of all time. Um, I think he's America's greatest essayist. Um, and so I always recommend his work. I think that um, usually people read The Fire Next Time, um, which is a letter that he wrote to his nephew documenting um, the experience, his experiences of, of racism um, in America. And I, so I'd recommend that, but I would also recommend people go further and also read his fiction because I think it takes up a lot of the same themes of race and class, like another country, uh, if Beale Street could talk, go tell it on the mountain. And also his other nonfiction work, especially the stuff that he was working on later in his life um, are these brilliant exp um, expository writings on, on racism that are almost profit-like. Um, Nobody Knows My Name and No Name in the Street in particular. I would, I would invite people to read in terms of nonfiction. I think um, <clears throat> the work of, of W.E.B. Du Bois is very important. Uh, the Souls of Black Folk would be a good starting point for that. I think the fiction of, of, of Toni Morrison, Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison are all very important. I also would invite people to read the prison writings of Huey P. Newton, who was a, um, former, who was a, a one of the, the founders of the Black Panther Party. Um, but beyond being one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, he was a philosopher, he was a poet, he was a, um, a great critical scholar and theorist. And a lot of his um, nonfiction work and nonfiction writing is, is, is brilliant, I think. Um, where else would I invite people to turn to? The music of Nina Simone. Mm -hmm. um, For sure. I wish I knew how it felt to be free. Um, four women, Sinner Man, almost her entire discography, I would say. Um, a lot of jazz musicians. Like do you Miles know? Davis. Do you know? Yeah. Do you know Under Arrest by Miles Davis? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's my favorite Miles Davis record, especially the first track where mm -hmm. he, he, he got arrested uh, in a Ferrari. <laughs> and then <laughs> he, he had this. Uh, I mean, people have to listen to it. Uh, maybe not everyone's style, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that Miles Davis is great. I think that. Um, John Coltrane's Stardust is is another great starting point. Mm. Um, let me try and think of some contemporaneous examples that are not so obvious. I think that um, one, oh, one, this is not a contemporaneous example, but um, I always invite people to read Moby Dick by Herman Melville, oh. which yeah. is interesting because it on its on a surface level, it's a book about a whale and it's a book about um, a captain's maniacal search for this white whale. But it is also a book about the construction and the, the precarity of empire. And, and Melville is writing into this novel that describes um, the secondhand experience of Captain Ahab's monomaniacal obsession with the whale is sort of ethnography of American history at the at the height of 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 chattel slavery at the height of 
American military and political and cultural hegemony. And so I think that it's um it's a it's a way of starting to see how race and racism seeps in metaphorically. And if you can sort of start to read Moby Dick as a political novel, I think that interpretive ability is useful in um, charting out ways in which it exists metaphorically or symbolically in our everyday lives. Um, and so maybe the task that I would invite people into in terms of con contemporary context is thinking about um, what ways these the Africanist presence seeps into our everyday lives mm. and, and looking at pieces of culture and media that don't necessarily have black subjects or don't necessarily take up the subject of race and seeing in which ways race still seems to find a way in and still seems to infiltrate the imagination of, of, of the song, the imagination of the film, the imagination of the text. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's, that's its own task in and of its, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a task on its own, that interpretive ability. And I think that that's maybe what's more important than maybe it's, they're similarly important, I would say, um, than reading, reading list is learning what you can do with that information hmm. and learning what you can do with your own sense of self and your own epistemological standpoint. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your perspective and your experience. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening. For more information about Ian and his work, go to ianpartman.com. For other episodes and ways to support this podcast, go to livefromplatoscave.com. You can also leave me a voice message there with your interpretation of Plato's allegory or any questions that you might have. This is an independent educational podcast and I really appreciate any support you can offer. Whether it is through Patreon, leaving a review on your podcast app or sharing the episode with others.